Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. My name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America? I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the Nerd App Podcast. This week, as we all remember Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Nerd App Podcast is going to take a look at some of the ladies of the civil rights movement, female performers, activists, the women of the civil rights movement who often get left out of history books. We'll talk with Professor Kiona Irvin to get to know some of the women who took a more traditional activist role. Women like Dorothy Height, Ella Baker, and Fannie Lou Hamer. But first, Professor Ruth Feldstein. Ruth is the author of the new book, How It Feels to Be Free, Black Women Entertainers and the Civil Rights Movement. She's also Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University. In my book, I look at women entertainers who were involved in different ways in the civil rights movement, starting with Lena Horne and then moving on to singers Nina Simone, Abby Lincoln, who was a jazz singer and also appeared in several films. Elegant boy, beautiful girl, dancing for joy, delicate world, shades of delight, cocoa you rich as the night, Afro blue. Mira McCabe, who's a South African singer who was in the United States for... 10 years from the late 50s into the late 60s, actresses Cecily Tyson and Diane Carroll. Be here at 9 and make yourself as handsome as you can manage. I'm tired of looking at ugly nurses. I married one. I'll do my best, sir. But has Mr. Colton told you? Tell me what. I'm colored. What color are you? I'm a Negro. You always been a Negro? You're just trying to be fashionable. Nine o'clock. Try and be pretty. Part of why I think it's important to look at women entertainers is because a lot of Americans engage with the civil rights movement, not just through traditional politics or what I call politics with a capital P. They didn't go to boycotts. They didn't go to marches. They weren't involved in agitating for any kind of specific legislation. But they did listen to certain music or go to certain movies or watch certain television shows. And that was the way that they made sense of the civil rights movement. So these women, I argue, are performing civil rights through their cultural work, and we need to think about them as being activist entertainers. Some of them were asked to do so very specifically. Lena Horne's a great example of that. She very famously got a 
contract with a Hollywood studio in 1941 with MGM. She's the first black woman to have that kind of contract. with Walter White. He was executive director of the NAACP at that time, and he thought it was really important to work on opening doors to African Americans in Hollywood at that period. So Walter White specifically asked Lena Horne to perform civil rights in certain ways. He said it was really important for her to dress conservatively, to make demands but not be too outspoken in her demands. So he really asked her to reinforce images of African Americans as respectable and therefore deserving of rights. And it led to a group of thinkers and activists having conversations with some of the most powerful people in American politics, right? So Lena Horne was invited to this meeting with Robert Kennedy in 1963. This was a time where the civil rights movement was unfolding most dramatically in Birmingham, Alabama where African-Americans for weeks had been staging these massive nonviolent protests and had been facing tremendous resistance from the city's commissioner, Bull Connor, as well as state troopers and other white quarters of segregation. And Americans around the country were watching these protests unfold on television. They were seeing African-Americans, activists as well as children, facing beatings, hoses, and dogs. So Robert Kennedy the attorney general at that point, is very concerned about all of this, and he wants to have a meeting with what he calls influential African Americans because he wants them to de-escalate the situation. There was an assumption already that culture was one of the battlegrounds of the civil rights movement because otherwise he wouldn't have even called on these celebrities and famous stars to meet with Robert Kennedy. Did she and the others face, especially as they became more and more famous, challenges within the African-American community and outside of it about the authenticness of the experience they were trying to relay? Nina Simone never did. Um, I think there was a way in which Nina Simone was always seen as very authentic, even though what it meant to be authentic is a moving target. Nina Simone always earned that designation of an authentic representation of African Americans in song, in culture, in part because she was raised in the South and in part because of the kinds of music she performed. Lena Horne faced those charges much more so, and in part that has to do with the fact that her career really took off in the 1940s, and at that point she came to fame as what I call respectable sex symbol. She was seen as very, very glamorous, and she was a light-skinned star. In the 1960s, she herself discounted her earlier years of activism by saying that that wasn't the right way to have represented African-Americans in the 1940s. Nina Simone, for example, was an amazingly mesmerizing performer who was really known to connect with her audiences. 
And she performed at small clubs as well as at Carnegie Hall in the United States, beyond the United States, different kinds of festivals. But she didn't do a lot of television work. I think she was seen as a little bit too provocative, a little too unconventional, a little too radical in her politics. Nina Simone wrote one of her most famous songs a month after the March on Washington, and that's Mississippi Goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. And she suggests a very different kind of politics in terms of the kind of racial activism she's talking about and a very different kind of gender politics in the ways that she performs as a black woman. She wrote it in September of 1963. She had just heard about that terrible church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. The Ku Klux Klan planted a bomb and four young girls were killed. Can't you see it? I know you can feel it. It's all in the air. I can't stand this pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. And Nina Simone says that she heard about that bombing and she immediately went out and wrote this song. She said it came to her, there's a quote from her, a rush of fury, hatred, and determination. And in the song Mississippi Goddamn, she really rejects the ethos of going slow. Picket line, schoolboy cops. They try to say it's a communist plot, but all I want is equality for my sister, my brother, my people, and me. And remember, the title of the song is Mississippi Goddamn. She puts that damn right in the title. She's saying, I don't have to behave like a lady to get my rights. I can be angry. So she's really taking this moment, this March on Washington moment, and turning it on its head and really challenging the conventional wisdom about interracial activism in that moment. lots of different venues and different kinds of genres to build their careers. In the period where their careers were really taking off in the late 50s, there was this booming post-war culture industry alongside a really vital political subcultures, too. Nina Simone really said it best. She's describing the Village Gate in that period, which is a jazz club, she said, where, and I'm quoting her, politics was mixed in with so much of what went on that I remember it now is two sides of the same coin, politics and jazz. Wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all chains still binding me, yeah. This is not an issue that's gone away with these performers. These kinds of debates about authenticness and trying to balance racial and gender politics, we can see being played out and debated on blogs 
today, right now, when it comes to Beyonce's new essay on feminism. And it made me think of something from the beginning of your book when you mentioned that James Baldwin said of Hansberry that people struggled to think that she had serious intentions because of her glamorous frame. Is that the heart of what female performers face, being taken seriously for their work while also being seen, like you said, as sex symbols or having to be appropriate but having this fire inside them in the art that they want to make? I'm not an expert on Beyonce beyond the kind of obvious points that she's incredibly talented and incredibly smart in terms of how she is working to control the conversation about her and images of her. In that regard, I definitely see lines of continuity between the women I write about and struggles that women performers in general and black women performers specifically still are facing in terms of this effort to control how they were represented and how they were talked about. And I think the women I write about were rarely able to do so as consistently or as effectively as Beyonce can now. I think the other big difference between the women I write about and the ongoing struggles that women face today, and Beyonce is a good example of that, is that they had to make a claim in many respects to having the right to be considered glamorous. Glamorous up to the point that I am writing about in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s was strongly associated with whiteness and with white women specifically. So for black women to even claim the right to be seen as glamorous was itself a political move that had everything to do with race and gender. Some of the women I'm writing about, including Abby Lincoln, Nina Simone, Mary McCabe, Cecily Tyson, are claiming the right to be considered glamorous in very new ways by performing with the hair natural and afros, by saying, I can be glamorous and have a seriousness of purpose associated with politics. I can be glamorous and not wear tight-fitting, sexy sheath dresses that someone like Lena Horne had done in the 1940s. So they're really redefining glamour, whereas I think that for many black women performers now, there's more of a starting point that their glamour is more of a given. I wish I could be like a bird in the sky. Don't leave me. How sweet it would be to find that I could fly. I'd soar to the sun and look down. Thanks to Ruth Feldstein for talking with us. You can find a Spotify playlist and YouTube clips of some of the performances mentioned at nerdatpodcast.com. Now, Kiona Irvin. She's a professor of African-American history at the University of Missouri. To be a woman within this particular social movement was a really challenging experience. We have numerous examples of African-American women, for instance, who were marginalized within a movement that sought to advance racial equality in America. So let's start with Ella Baker. What was her role? Ella Baker, I would say, is probably one of the most significant social movement activists of the 20th century. She really had her hand in all of the major campaigns that we would associate with the civil rights movement. So she's born and raised in the South. She migrates to Harlem, actually, 
this was the place to be in terms of there being a kind of cosmopolitan black political scene. Of course, this is the era of the Depression, so there's a merging really of questions around racial justice as well as economic justice. And so that all really is the foundation of her activism. And so once she moves into the NAACP as a field secretary, basically kind of helping to grow the numbers of that organization. And most importantly, I'd say she becomes really the lead organizer and lead founder, really, of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. And she gets to this position in part as a kind of result of the frustration she experienced with a male civil rights leadership that denied the role of multiple voices in the construction of political campaigns. Uh, she felt that very keenly and thought that if she did not organize the youth wing of the civil rights movement, then that wing would really, in a sense, be diminished as a result of a charismatic, religious male, top-down model, as she would understand it, of political leadership. It's really in SNCC that she finds a kind of political home. So SNCC, under the leadership of Ella Baker, would often go into some of the most dangerous communities of the Deep South, right, known for having traditions of racial violence. They would go into these pockets and really try to get a sense of what local people themselves identified as their most important social issues, right, and then kind of direct resources to them and certainly support them in that effort. One of the most popular notions that came from her politics was, you know, strong people don't need strong leaders. And that comes right out of her experiences as, as a young person, what she found in Harlem. What was the importance of having women join not just the civil rights movement, but the labor movement? Yeah, Because since work was such a gendered thing in America, it still is in many ways. But at that time, if labor issues of women's work weren't addressed, then they would probably not be addressed at all. That's absolutely true. And what we find with these African-American women who play a crucial role in the civil rights movement is that they really have a kind of intersectional approach to solving trenchant social problems. So figures like Ella Baker, figures like Dorothy Hyde, certainly a figure like Fannie Lou Hamer, right? They are understanding racial justice as deeply connected to, for instance, questions around work and economic equality or economic justice. Fannie Lou Hamer grows up in poverty. She's a sharecropper. She grows up in a sharecropping family and is really drawn into the civil rights movement and questions really of black political participation in part because of the issue of poverty. When we talk about the intersection of the economic and racial politics, Fannie Lou Hamer and her sterilization perhaps couldn't be a more striking example of what happened to women in her situation who did not have that political power. Absolutely, right? And so there are important concerns here around the history of African-American women being the victims of sexualized assault, sexualized racial violence, and the like. It's important to remember about a figure like Fannie Lou Hamer is that she raised awareness about this particular issue. In 1964, she raises awareness about that to a televised national audience. It's such a threatening speech that President Johnson at the time delivers an impromptu uh, press conference as a way to, in a sense, stop Amer from raising such issues. But absolutely, that also adds a dimension to really understanding African-American women's role in the civil rights move to this problem, to this long-standing problem. Dorothy Hyde is an example, too, of one who raises awareness. 
When we talk about Dorothy Height and bringing together people around not just the racial side of the movement, but the gendered side, we have Wednesdays in Mississippi. She brought together black and white women in meetings. She forced people into a room together to hash out these ideas. Interracialism or a kind of interracial cooperation was really central to her activism. And I think the thinking was that if there could be a kind of gender solidarity, we might call it, that would bridge racial divide among women in particular, what they actually formed were important coalition of women that not only advanced the cause by virtue of the programs they implemented, but they were the very embodiment of the kind of freedom vision that Hyde and her colleagues had in mind. Thanks to Kiona Irvin from the University of Missouri for helping us get to know those great lady nerds of the civil rights movement. We're always looking for great lady nerds of history to feature on Nerdette. Give us a call, 312-600-5638. Time now for homework. Your first piece of homework this week is to read the new book, by Ruth Feldstein, How It Feels to be Free, Black Women Entertainers and the Civil Rights Movement. And don't forget, there's a link to YouTube clips from some of those performances and a Spotify playlist of the music featured in the book at nerdettepodcast.com. And while you're on our website where you can find that playlist and all sorts of other musings throughout the week, don't forget to check out the Nerdette Podcast swag store. You can get Nerdette mugs, t-shirts, anything you want with our logo on it. A few of those shekels end up in our pocket, and you get cool stuff. It's a win-win. We should be using the word shekels much more often in life. (laughs) That's it for this week. Thanks to Professors Ruth Feldstein and Kiona Irvin. Thanks to Joe Dassault for his production help. Thanks to WBEZ and WCQS, our home stations. Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Throw us some stars if you're feeling benevolent. We really like stars, guys. I wish we didn't care about stars, but we do. We care about stars. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.